Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, August 17th. We begin with a look at the upcoming federal election and specifically how the election could affect the Liberal Party's previously announced plan to roll out a national child care plan. We discuss with a professor of early childhood policy from the University of Toronto. Continuing our discussion on the election, we get a breakdown on the latest polling numbers from the party standings to a look at how people from different age demographics are planning to vote. We speak with Daryl Bricker, CEO of Public Affairs from Ipsos. Next, are you planning an international trip in the not-too-distant future? We get the latest on what you need to know about vaccination and testing requirements ahead of your vacation with the travel lady, Leslie Cater. And finally, are you a believer in Bigfoot? We speak with an Alberta-based filmmaker and Sasquatch aficionado who says Bigfoot does in fact exist and claims he has the video footage to prove it. Could Justin Trudeau be gambling the progress made for Canada's national child care plan with his call for a September 20th election? Carrie McQuaig is a fellow in early childhood policy at the Atkinson Centre, Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at the University of Toronto, and joins us now with her thoughts. Good morning to you, Carrie. Good morning. It's very interesting because this has been, well, something that's been bandied about for years, but really has gained traction in the past several months. Obviously, if it's tied to a, a liberal government, that's one thing, but uh, we you know, could see some change as early as September 20th. Is the progress that's been made in jeopardy, in your opinion? Yes, we could be in some trouble. Um, what Mr. O'Toole is offering us is a reboot of... Um, Mr. Harper's plan from 2006 when the Martin Child Care Plan was scrapped in place of pretty much what Mr. Toole is offering us now. And look at us, it's 15 years later and we still have, we're still talking child care. We still have the same problems we've always had, that there's not enough child care, parents pay too much for it, and we cannot find enough qualified educators to work in it. Well, and it was very interesting to me because, uh, you know, even with the liberal plan put forward, it was kind of a, I don't know if it's, you know, not self-serve, but monies would be provided. The provinces can, you know, use this and make things go of it. Then Alberta, for example, a standout in our province saying, oh, we're going to deal with it. Let us make our own plan. Uh, But again, not really moving the bar, uh, the ball forward. Well, even in Alberta, Alberta recognizes that, um, that you have to spend money to create childcare mm-hmm. if you want more childcare. Uh, you don't get more childcare by giving money to parents, right? Because there has to be something to buy. And we know that, you know, less than 30% of families uh, have access to licensed uh, childcare. Um, so that this is, um, you know, I, I, I'm thinking, um, because I'm from Ontario, where our premier is also has not signed on mm-hmm. to the uh, to the plan. Uh, so my best guess is that uh, they were waiting to see about what the outcome of the election will be. Mm-hmm. But there is so much money on the table um, here that I cannot see a province turning its back on it. Yeah, and there you have it. And I'm wondering, you know, Kerry, as far as we, we look at Quebec uh, in our nation, but as far as, you know, other, and I don't want to put you on the spot with this, other nations across the globe, 
you know, how, how do we fare as far as child care and programs in place? Are we somewhere in the middle? Are we leading the way or are we behind? Oh, Canada always comes in at the end. Uh, we are um, amongst uh, amongst uh, our OECD uh, counterparts. Uh, we are uh, uh, very poor at providing uh, families with good early education for their for their kids. Um, it's uh, it's this is really an unfinished, you know, part of the of the social fabric that that we need, and you know, the evidence just pours out on a regular basis about how important the early years are for kids' development. Um, and, uh, you know, and the fact that, that we are one of the few countries that don't have, uh, you know, across the, the board access for children to good early, um, early education programs is something that's going to hold us back. I mean, it's, it's holding us back now in that we know that there are are women who are not going to get out of the pandemic um, until there is childcare and they can return to uh, to work, feeling that their that their kids are someplace um, where they can be healthy and safe and well looked looked after. Um, that's a that's a, a given. But we're also going to pay down the line mm-hmm. uh, when other countries uh, overtake us because their kids were better prepared for school than for life. I think that, Carrie, I think that's one of the pieces that's uh, that's missed quite a bit when people don't understand that education component, that socialization component at a young age. We, we've heard a lot on this radio station of those folks who say, why should I be paying for your child care? And they don't see the value down the line of, uh, you know, society, uh, you know, with a well-educated population. And to a certain extent, what that mother or father can contribute to the economy in the meantime while their child is in, uh, you know, early education. Well, we only have to think back to the early days of the of the pandemic when schools closed, childcare programs closed. You know, when the you know when we essentially shut shut down, and one of the first things to open was emergency childcare, and it had to open because if we wanted, you know, if we wanted our doctors and our nurses and you know the people that needed to be on the front lines in order to deal with the with the pandemic, they needed childcare, and. Yes, we can say, okay, let's not pay for other people's um, for other people's kids. But you know, then who's gonna who's gonna staff your schools? Who's gonna staff mm. your hospital? Who's gonna run your courts? I mean, in all of these um, in all of these uh, sectors, women predominate. Yep. Uh, there's not going back. You know, we're not going back to Ozzy and Harriet here. Uh, <laughs> the if if women stay home, and you know, sometimes my fantasies are yes every woman with a small child should just stay home and just show what it would be like yeah. that's 35 billion dollars out of the economy every year um so you know i i i don't even want to entertain these kinds of arguments anymore yeah it's um it is an interesting uh, roundabout i'm wondering uh, can you stick around for two more minutes with us care we have to take a quick break do you have, do you have some time sure Oh, perfect. Okay, more uh, on the way with Carrie McQuaig, fellow in child early childhood policy, Atkinson Centre, Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, University of Toronto. One of the big hot button issues. Mornings with Sue and Andy, uh, having some more time here with Carrie McQuaig, fellow in early childhood policy, Atkinson Centre, Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, University of Toronto. Uh, thank you for spending some more time with us, Carrie. We appreciate it. My pleasure.
Yeah, and I want to talk about you know, the different plans and in, in will, uh, will or will they not survive when you look at the Liberal plan come September 20th, uh, you know, regardless of, of the outcome. And the, the uh, CPC plan, uh, the Arno tool, you know, uh, uh, unveiling of, of his vision and the vision of the parties is more tax credit based. Is the issue with this that, you know, those parents, uh, and we're hearing for, for many parents, cost of child care can be more than a mortgage payment. Uh, these parents have to have the, the cash up front. Uh, the tax credits are one thing, but the uh, cash up front still has to be, uh, you know, ready to go? Well, to be fair to their plan, they do say that they are going to um, make payments throughout the year. So okay. somebody wouldn't have to, you know, one put time. the money, yes, wouldn't have to uh, put the money up, up front. But the problem is um, when you look at, you know, the you know, the typical family that they're talking about. So, you know, the family that's making 30000 would get $6,000 uh, in a tax credit. The family that's making 50000 would get uh, $6,000 in a, in a tax credit. If you're making 30000 you are not you are not buying licensed child care. Yeah. You know, licensed child care in your province, you know, goes up to fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars $16,000 um, a year for this age group. Um you know, you're you're getting your mom to, you know, yeah. you're getting your mom to, you know. The, the point is, you can put out a policy that nobody can take advantage of. And this is the flaw in the, in the conservatives' plan. You can, you know, giving somebody, when somebody's making $30,000, giving them $6,000 towards a $15,000 bill, you might as well give them $6. They still can't afford it. Um, so it's it's disingenuous to say that this is uh, going to help out families, that this is going to give that this is going to give families choice, uh, for two reasons. One is there's not there's not enough childcare there, mm-hmm. and two, um, e- even if it was there, they couldn't afford to purchase it. Yeah, and, and you know, I think that's the other piece we're talking about: not enough childcare there. And you mentioned, you know, if you don't have the spots, you don't have the spots, but. This could be, you know, be a, a, a huge, when every single, you know, party gets in front of a microphone, talks about job creation, you can imagine the jobs that would be created in the child care industry if this was clicking nationwide. Well, even though child care is a small sector, it's a very labor-intensive uh, sector. There's over 200,000 people across the country that are employed in early learning and uh, early learning and, ch- and child care. Mm. So, yes. Think about ramping, ramping that up. There are a lot of jobs, and if they are good jobs, they could deliver a very good service. Yeah. Well, you know, we're asking the question. We're discussing it this morning, uh, Carrie, and we appreciate your time. And I guess we'll have some answers in just a little over 30 days. So, uh, you know, there you have it anyway. But we appreciate your time this morning. My pleasure, and good luck Thank you. to us all. <laughs> to us all. That is Carrie McQuaig. Fellow in Early Childhood Policy, Atkinson, uh, Atkinson Centre, Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. The federal election campaign has officially begun, but have party standings changed? And what are Canadians' intentions when it comes to heading to the polls next month? To help break down the numbers, we are joined now by Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Global Public Affairs with Ipsos. Good morning to you, Daryl. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being here. We appreciate it. Well, it's clear that the Liberals would like to come out of this election with a majority. So how does the current polling compare with how people actually voted in 2019, Daryl? 
Well, it's uh, it's one of those dreams that's just out of sight for them. Uh, they could win a majority, but not based on the numbers that they have right now. Uh, they're going to need bigger than a five-point lead over the Conservatives to comfortably form a majority. Okay, so not quite enough. Of course, let's, let's talk about the regions, though. Is, is, is this a regional thing? Could things shift? Yeah, the interesting thing about Canadian politics is, you know, we, we sit beside the United States and we think our system operates like their system operates. It, it clearly doesn't. Ours is really 338 separate races all across the country. Mm. And the parties do, uh, you know, better and worse in each of those ridings uh, from election to election. So uh, what we're seeing right now is that there are parts of the country, Atlantic Canada, Quebec, um, Ontario, and in British Columbia right now, where the Liberals have a, a bit of a lead, or in some instances a comfortable lead. But in Western Canada in particular, and by the West I mean the prairies, so yeah. Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, um, the Conservatives are really strong. Okay, yeah, okay, absolutely. So there are the other opportunities. Uh, let's talk about the undecided voters. Have any significant numbers when it comes to the undecided as we're uh, 35 days away? Yeah, the undecideds are about 17 to 20 percent of the vote. But even the people who are firmly, who say that they're voting for a particular party right now, there's an awful lot of what we call leaners. People who say, you know, I could change my mind. So I think that uh, the situation is extremely fluid. Uh, it's an election like no other. We're holding it in the midst of a pandemic, and there could be some surprises. Did your research indicate any other demographic that could make a real difference for one party or another? Yeah, the one uh, demographic that always shows up is older Canadians. And when you take a look at that group, the Conservatives and the Liberals are almost tied among among boomer voters. And um, the Conservatives usually have a pretty comfortable lead, so the Liberals are quite competitive there. But if we have a low turnout, and it tends to be disproportionately boomers that show up, it's going to be a very tight race indeed. Yeah, and uh, we'll be here to watch it to play out. I'm sure we'll be talking uh, with you. It's a busy time of the year for you folks, isn't it? Uh, yeah. It's like our Olympics or you know, prom or whatever you want to say, nerd prom. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, we're, we're keeping busy, but we love doing this work for Global News. So thanks for having us. Yeah, on. and we like the insight. So thank you so much, Daryl. We appreciate your time. Pleasure. Thanks. That is Daryl Bricker, CEO of Public Affairs with Ipsos. It may seem like a bit of a moving target when it comes to knowing all the requirements of travel during the pandemic. If you have an upcoming trip in the works, better to be safe than sorry when it comes to having the correct information in front of you. So have no fear. We've got some professional help lined up for you. The travel lady, Leslie Cater, joins us to clear things up. Good morning to you, Leslie. Good morning, Andy. Well, it can be confusing with news of some destinations requiring vaccine passports, others requiring testing before entering the country, and some requiring both. So where do we start? Exactly. Well, looking at the testing, first of all, um, it's very important to get the correct test for the destination you're going to because you've probably uh, heard about PCR tests, mm -hmm. antigen tests. So double check that. Now, here's the thing with the COVID PCR test. It takes a little while to process. And I was curious to find out how that all works. So I actually went up to the labs. Uh, there's a lab up in the Northeast, Cardi Labs. And they very kindly gave me a tour of the lab and walked me through the process of what happens during a PCR test. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. yeah and it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I'm, I'm no scientist, <laughs> but, but it's extensive with the equipment and the samples and how they have to purify the samples. 
And as the technician told me there, uh, they have some extra checks in place because he said, who knows if when you're doing the sample, you get a little bit of uh, lipstick maybe or somebody's been chewing tobacco. You need to, uh, you know, be sure that you're getting rid of all of those so that you're getting an accurate test. Look at you, all sciencey. Uh, we have, we have a, a text for you, and this is very interesting because we've heard that some areas might not be recognizing the the mixing of the vaccines, like the AstraZeneca yes. and a, a Pfizer. This texter says, "Well, what are, what are we supposed to do if you know we want to go to the U.S. or to a cruise line and they don't see us as fully vaccinated?" Is this something mm. that you've heard uh, uh, being an issue? Uh, absolutely, I have, and of course, all those people who took the AstraZeneca when it was available. Um, now they're kind of stuck because they've maybe had Pfizer as the second dose. At the time, it was thought to be okay, but um, now not. Um, some countries are changing their stance a little bit on that, although mostly the cruise lines seem to be sticking firm. I have heard talk that those people may be able to get a booster shot so that they have two of the same so, for example, an extra Pfizer if they had AstraZeneca, Pfizer mixed. Um, but, yeah, it's going to be a difficult period for those people with the vac- uh, mixed vaccinations because there are some places that just won't take that. Yeah, very interesting. going to have to leave it there for time, but I know that you have uh, more information and you can answer questions at thetravellady.ca. So yes, thank you so much right. uh, for, for your time, Leslie. Oh, no problem, Andrew. Have a good day. You too. That is Leslie Cater, The Travel Lady. Could we expect to find the infamous Bigfoot in the next few years, or will we ever catch a glimpse of the creature? Oh, we chat now with a filmmaker and wilderness guide from Edmonton, Todd Standing, who's been following the hairy giant for quite some time. Good morning to you, Todd. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So let's talk to the non-believers out there. Is sure. there really Sasquatch, and have you seen one? Well, absolutely. I... Uh... I've been working and studying the species for approximately a decade now, over a decade. I'm getting a little older, I guess. And uh, yeah, I mean, I did it. I took, I take out the best in the world. I took out uh, Survivor Man on four episodes of Survivor Man. Took him out, had him live interact with them. Uh, you know, take PhDs out, show them Sasquatch. It's really this is kind of end game stuff. I, I mean, if people have seen my documentary, Discovering Bigfoot, there's actual real crystal clear footage of Sasquatch. I have multiple videos of it. We have new ones coming out, new documentary on Netflix. And the whole purpose of this, like the movie's called, is the discovery process to introduce the species to, especially fish and wildlife is really my goal. If I could take out fish and wildlife and they'd allow me to show them how to track and acknowledge and see what signs the species leaves behind, you know, this, this discovery would move forward very quickly and then we could go to the next level, which would be very exciting for me. Okay, so whereabouts are you having these sightings? What part of the world? Uh, the two, my two main spots is uh, Nordeg in uh, Alberta and Radium, British Columbia. There, I mean, I, I travel in the past with COVID. I've been doing a little bit of traveling because of, there's been a lot of restrictions. I mean, I've seen signs of them in Alabama, all the way. I mean, even Florida. I'm I'm very convinced that the what they call the skunk cape is an absolute reality down there. Washington State. I've done a lot of work in 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 that particular state, all the way into Nia Bay. Had sightings and live interactions with them. So, Washington State, British Columbia, Alberta, and Montana, uh, extremely almost identical terrain, and uh, the, the species does the same thing, has the same habits, and, and clearly exists in all uh, four of those states and provinces. Provinces, most assuredly, I've done a tremendous amount of work in, in all four of them. Okay, so I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I'm sure you've never sure. been questioned before, Todd, but. 
If they're real, you <laughs> know, if you can get images, that that's one thing. But how come we've never seen a carcass and we've never found the remains of a Bigfoot? Well, well in all the over 20 years I've been going into the backcountry, I've only seen a bear skull once. So, and, and what we know is the species is, is identified as Gigantopithecus. And about 100,000 years ago in Langchun, China, which is the Yeti, which is the exact uh, same species as Sasquatch, they're, they're called Gigantopithecus, they were putting their dead in a cave. So before human beings were burying and putting their dead in a particular spot, this Gigantopithecus species was doing that. So one might argue that they've been, you know, caring and, and respectful of their dead for longer than we have. And if that's the case, and that's what I see in the evidence, they're putting their dead in particular spots. And these beings that live in the most remote, harshest environments are putting their dead way deep somewhere in this, these remote, harsh environments and uh, haven't found those particular areas yet. And, and how, many, how many forensic anthropologists are going deep into the backcountry that could identify a bone, a leg bone, a shoulder. The only thing that would really be a smoking gun yeah. is a skull. And, and to be honest, I have people twice a year send me pictures of skulls that are just, you know, broken down pig skulls or yeah. bear skulls that have the front broken off of them. So it's, yeah. uh, you know, to, to identify uh, anthropologically uh, any other bone, a hip bone, an arm yeah. bone, you'd need to be a someone of exceptional knowledge yeah. and ability. Most people just think nothing of it. It's not the average hiker. So we appreciate that. Uh, we're tight for time, but we appreciate your time. We'll tell people to check out Discovering Bigfoot. So uh, thank you so thank much. You. We appreciate it. You're welcome. That is Todd Standing, filmmaker and wilderness guide from Edmonton, Discovering Bigfoot. Apparently you can check that out on Netflix. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.